0: Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. Just two years ago, we were talking about negative oil prices and collapsing energy markets during the onset of the first wave of COVID-19. Since then, a lot has changed from the global energy crunch that we discussed on this podcast in November last year to now, the devastating crisis in Ukraine.
1: Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at US ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine.
0: With the breakout of war, the fragility of global commodity markets has been laid bare. It's Alison Savis with you once again. For this episode, I'm joined by Antipodes Portfolio Manager of Hardware, Industrials and Commodities, Graeme Hay, to discuss energy and commodity markets amid the current global uncertainty. How are you, Graeme?
1: I'm very well, Alison. Good to be here.
0: Graeme, let's first talk about how we've been thinking about energy markets over the past few years. The Antipodes global portfolios have been overweight energy for the last six to 12 months led by exposure to US oil and natural gas producers. And this has been a key contributor to Alpha during recent market volatility.
1: Uh, that's right. Uh, as you know, we had been building energy exposure um, going back a couple of years now. Uh, the, the the genesis of that thinking was really the observation around the, the broader capital cycle that was likely to play out uh, in, in oil and gas. And it's an industry, of course, that is... Uh, very capital intensive. And if you look at the, uh, the pace of capex uh, since its peak in 2014, uh, by the end of uh, 2020 we were looking at an industry that had uh, dramatically underinvested in growing its production. and um, you know there's a few reasons for that which we can go into, but the inevitable consequence of that was that we would likely see a, a price cycle. Uh, in other words, rising energy prices. Uh, the, you know the rationale behind it. How did we get to that position? You know, it's it was a it was a combination of factors. Really, um, <clears throat> the industry sort of by the end of twenty twenty was in a a pretty uh, pretty dire uh, situation. Uh, there was enormous balance sheet leverage. Uh, the track record of uh, the prior five to seven years uh, of returns was was pretty bad. Um, we had a reconstitution of the shareholder base that was insisting on a very different. Uh, capital program amongst um, listed companies, Uh, one that would uh, prioritize debt reduction and the payment of dividends um, over growth. And at the same time, we had really had the rise of um, uh, ESG overlays that were um, running the ruler over everything that the fossil fuel industry was doing. All of those things really have conspired to raise uh, the hurdle rates uh, uh, that are required for oil and gas companies to invest in new capacity um, and, and indeed you've seen <clears throat> the industry spend at really only maintenance levels of capex for the last couple of years um, and, and whilst that sounds adequate in itself uh, maintenance capex is really only uh, the level of spend that gets you to you know uh, 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 declines in oil production rather than, than increases. Um, and there are various scenarios out there as to when fossil fuel demand will peak Um, but in our analysis we see uh, demand uh, still rising until the latter part of this decade Uh, and um, um, uh, there is a requirement to grow production to support that Um, the outcome of that of course is we've now seen a, a very significant price cycle all prices have moved up dramatically in the last year and of course the conflict that's now underway in the Ukraine, which you, you mentioned, has only um, added fuel to the fire um, uh, given uh, the importance that Russia plays in the global energy system.
0: Mm. And Russia really does have such an important role in energy markets globally, but particularly so in Europe, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Europe is uh, <laughs> very much dependent on Russia for a significant part of its, uh, particularly, its natural gas supply. Um, Europe, just to give you some round numbers, consumes about 500 BCM of natural gas a year. Um, about 150 billion of that, come, of that uh, BCM of that comes from uh, piped gas from Russia. And then um, another uh, uh, portion on top of that from uh, liquefied natural gas, LNG. Um, so Russia is um, very important. And there are, and there are certain countries uh, where Russia provides as much as 75 uh, to 100% of gas supplies for certain countries within the EU, mainly those in Eastern Europe. Um, so uh, it's it's a critical source of supply, and has you know got given and given the conflict that's now underway, it's become a you know certainly a, a bargaining chip um, between the EU and and Russia. Um, so we um, you know we sort of need to be very conscious of the potential fallout effects of any uh, any change in policy either on either side of the fence here.
0: Mm. And, and do you think Russia will turn off the gas to Europe?
1: Well, that's a question that everyone's asking. Of course, there's been sort of various statements made around that that possible scenario. Um, you know, it's worth pointing out that Europe in the immediate days and weeks after the conflict was initiated, um, have, I think, taken stock of the fragility of their energy security and have announced a range of measures um, that will see them accelerate their move away from their dependence on Russian gas Uh, and in the last week or so we've seen a a legislative proposal from the EU um, that would um, require uh, uh, the bloc to have um, their gas storage at a minimum level of 80% uh, at the start of next winter uh, so uh, around October this year and then rising to 90% in the years after that. Uh, so that that is um, you know the, 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 their ability to do that uh, is very much dependent on having access to Russian gas it's simply not possible um, between now and October of 2022 uh, that they could seek alternative means of, of uh, re- restoring their gas levels to those levels so, um i think all, all scenarios have been sort of countenanced no doubt um and we've seen lng supplies into europe uh, tick up quite strongly uh, in the first two months of 2022 um and that can continue but there is a limited capacity for lng to um to supply e- europe in the short term um, they very much depend on on russian gas so um, let, no, no, nobody, of course, knows the answer to your question, Alison, but <laughs> it's something that everyone, it's, it's occupying everyone's mind as we speak.
0: Mm. And, and, Graham, it's its not just energy prices that have moved due to the crisis in the Ukraine. Commodity prices broadly are rising. You know, Russia, Ukraine and Belarus are not only large exporters of energy, but are also important suppliers of several commodities, so can you take us through the wider implications of sanctions against Russia and the impact to Ukraine?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Europe, uh, sorry, I should say Russia and, and, and the Ukraine and, and Belarus combined um, uh, are very important uh, export markets for a range of commodities, not just oil and gas. Um, you know, we see things like aluminium, nickel, steel fertilisers, uh, sunflower oil, uh, grain, various grains, for example. Um, the, all of these markets uh, are potentially going to be impacted by um, the, the sanctions and um, inability to get this product uh, to its intended export destinations. Uh, we have seen, for instance, um, a, a significant move up in, uh, in palm oil prices. Palm oil uh, is a, a product that competes with sunflower oil, uh, sunflower oil. About 50% of world production comes out of um, uh, that part of the world and is uh, likely to be impacted. And so we've already seen flow and effects in the price of palm oil over the last uh, several weeks. Um, We've seen uh, uh, also significant increases in the price of potash, uh, where um, uh, Belarus is a major exporter of potash. Uh, There were already export restrictions um, that were in place ahead of this conflict, but uh, the inability to transport uh, those um, those tons through um, through Russia has made it almost impossible to for that product to reach market. So th- there are some uh, wide scale effects here that are uh, that are playing out and will be felt through a number of product and commodity markets um, in the in the months ahead. So. Uh, all the attention of course has been on oil and gas but um, you know we see a much broader impact across a range of commodity markets um, this year
0: can we go back to that original thesis and why we have been overweight energy before the current price surges and talk about our longer term view of the energy market so looking beyond what we're all hoping for which is of course a peaceful end to the conflict in ukraine Natural gas, in particular, is an area we've been positive on, even as the world decarbonises.
1: That's right. Uh, so it's worth mentioning um, that we have uh, long held the view that the, the view that uh, natural gas uh, is an important stepping stone uh, or transition fuel in the path to a, a decarbonised economy. Uh, the reality is, for large parts of the world, the uh, ability for uh, renewables. Um, to uh, provide baseload power that is consistent and reliable simply today does not exist. And there are lots of countries that want to get off the use of, of, of coal and and see gas as a mature, stable, uh, much lower carbon emission option uh, in order to do that. So I think you've seen growing recognition of that across a number of political um, uh, parts of the world. Uh, and there's even consideration in the EU of including gas in the EU taxonomy. Um, uh, so, you know, I think it it clearly has an important role to play. Uh, and we, you know, through the portfolios, we've expressed that through some very specific exposures um, in, in the US, where we see um, a combination of um, <clears throat> very well-run companies with high-quality assets uh, producing a product which is trading at a very significant discount to the world price. In other words, U.S. natural gas prices, as measured or expressed by Henry Hub, trade at very significant discounts to the uh, prices that are paid in Asia and uh, and in and in Europe. Increasingly, um, now the reason for that, of course, is that U.S. gas has historically been largely trapped <laughs> inside that country um, uh, without a meaningful way of getting to market. <clears throat> but as uh, the uh, investments in uh, uh, liquefaction capacity in the U.S. Uh, begin to pick up, and that's certainly um, the case as we speak. We're seeing a lot of new capacity come to market. Uh, we see we do see a path for um, a recalibration of U.S. gas prices um, to take advantage of the uh, very strong prices in other parts of the world, and and so from a portfolio perspective, the way we've wanted to play that is to own you know high quality businesses that have. Uh, low cost, uh, and deep inventories of, of natural gas, uh, importantly in, in parts of the US that have access to um, access to that uh, LNG capacity. Uh, and so we've built uh, various exposures. Uh, Exxon gave us uh, certainly uh, access to that and more than half of their upstream portfolio is natural gas. And a good portion of that is uh, onshore uh, in the US. They have other complementary natural gas assets as well. But that was a key part of the thesis in owning Exxon from uh, the start of 2021. Uh, but we've also complemented that with other positions. Um, a company, for example, such as Katera Energy, um, is a largely pure play gas company um, without uh, without any offshore assets. Um, uh, and um <clears throat> it also uh, uniquely in, in the US <clears throat> oil and gas industry, it had a, large, a largely unhedged Production profile. One of the uh, kind of consequences of um, the the malinvestment that happened across the industry was that all of the all of the financiers were, were insistent that oil and gas companies uh, hedged their uh, hedged their uh, price exposure uh, so as to guarantee a minimum level of um, um, uh, interest cover uh, on, on their debt. Uh, Katerra had the the um, <clears throat> the uh, unique position of being um, uh, unlevered. And had the ability to run an unhedged production profile. So, in buying Katerra, you get all of the upside to uh, the the move in prices that we've uh, that we've enjoyed over the last sort of year and a half. Um, so, those two names together have been sort of cornerstone positions for us um, over the last uh, year or so, and have certainly p- performed very well. Um, and as we look at them today, uh, with the stocks having sort of done quite well uh, at spot at spot sort of. Commodity prices, natural gas and oil, both stocks are still very attractive on a free cash flow basis. Uh, Katera trading cl- close to 20% free cash flow yield. Um, Exxon not quite as high as that, but certainly attractive at north of 10% free cash flow yield, but importantly uh, for uh, Exxon investors, close to a 6% dividend yield. So um, you know, still very comfortable with those positions, uh, and one might now consider the possibility of complementing them with um, with other, you know, other exposures that, that, that are part of the same mm-hmm. ecosystem.
0: Okay, Graham. let's move on to the second part of this episode. You've mentioned both Exxon and Catera, so can we spend a bit more time on our current portfolio positioning? In terms of energy production, the ultimate goal is decarbonisation. But this is a multi-decade investment cycle, and there will be steps along the way. For example, you mentioned the role of gas as part of the transition. The Antipodes' global portfolios have exposure to Technip Industries and Siemens Energy, which are both beneficiaries of decarbonisation. Can you take us through these holdings?
1: Sure. Uh, These sit very much complementary to our our producer exposure um, that you you just mentioned. Uh, Both Technip and uh, Siemens Energy are are geared to energy infrastructure spend. Um, Technip Energies, for instance, uh, in the 1960s was the very first company to develop an LNG facility. Uh, they have a, you know, a, a more than 50 year history in developing, designing and managing these types of installations and, 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 uh, and continue to do so today. Uh, uh, the company, uh, uh, was uh, recently spun off from a, from a larger entity, um, uh, about 18 months ago. And, um, uh, like often happens with spin offs, was left somewhat orphaned by investors, and, and we've seen that as an opportunity. Uh, because when we look across the, uh, the landscape around the amount of both uh, greenfield LNG capacity that's, uh, that has to come online to move uh, that US natural gas to other parts of the world, uh, or we look at the remediation of existing facilities, both petrochemical, oil, and gas, etc., uh, the decarbonization of uh, existing facilities Technip energies has the uh, engineering uh, skill set uh, and um, capabilities to really um, to, to really build um, and and service those opportunities so um, it's a company that we think is um, uh, grossly underappreciated by the market uh, we are in the foothills of a major investment cycle across um decarbonization and uh, rejuvenation of, of energy infrastructure uh, and that is you know evident in Technib Energy's um, um, backlog of business which is a, a multiple of their uh, current market cap uh, and certainly the recent um, uh, reporting by the company indicates that um, that thesis that we, that we have is, is coming through in their numbers. Um, so you know we think it's a, a very interesting situation and um, uh, the stock trades uh, on a single-digit multiple of earnings. Uh, and whilst they do have some exposure to Russia uh, in the short term that could impact numbers uh, as we go into 2022 and 2023, um, the, the, the important point to make there, though, is that there is no balance sheet risk because these types of projects uh, where, they, uh, they, where they're building large LNG trains for a customer, they receive all the cash up front, Uh, And then they draw down on that cash as they deliver the project to the client. So there's no material balance sheet risk associated with their Russian exposure, but there may be some earnings risk to come out. Um, uh, Having said that, uh, the backlog is very diverse and continues to grow. Uh, And so looking beyond the short term sort of hiccups that could happen uh, relating to Russia, we see a business that has a a very long runway for uh, profitable growth. Um, Siemens Energy uh, is a slightly different story. Uh, the company, uh, well, there is a, there's one similarity in that it was also a spin-off from its its mothership, Siemens, a company that we've been invested in for some years ourselves. Siemens Energy um, is a company whose business spans uh, traditional um, uh, oil and gas oil uh, gas turbines, I should say, uh, transmission and distribution infrastructure, um, but they also have a stake in. The world's largest offshore wind company, is Siemens Gamesa, um, that stake is about two thirds of the company today. Uh, the remainder is, is is publicly listed, so we actually have a valuation of for that unit to ascribe to Siemens Energy. Uh, when we when we do the analysis on ascribing that value, we see that Sen- Siemens Energy's core business uh, trades on the, the 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 paltry multiple of about four times EBIT. Um, which is, uh, a, 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 again, for a business that is, um, uh, is growing its backlog and improving its profitability, is a, um, a very low multiple. Uh, the other thing that Siemens Energy has going for it, uh, which is something we think will materialise commercially for them in the second half of this decade, is they have one of the most advanced electrolyzer ecosystems in the market. Elect- electrolysis, of course, will play a very big role in the production of green hydrogen, uh, and Siemens Energy combined with their, um, uh, their offshore wind capability and green hydrogen ecosystem really have a complete solution for next-generation energy systems. Uh, and again, we think that is you know, heavily overlooked <laughs> by the market, um, primarily because of the concerns that have emerged around the wind business in the short term. Uh, that, that sector, as you may have read, is dealing with um, rampant cost inflation, Uh, And the company are taking measures to try and, you know, stem the worst of that impact financially. But we think that is ultimately a transitory factor that once that is under control, uh, we think, um, you know, um, the market will start to look through the longer term growth, longer term growth opportunity that comes with it.
0: Uh, Nutrien is another company I wanted to, another portfolio holding I wanted to discuss with you. Uh, We established a position in it last year. It's the world's largest potash producer and and potash is a key component of fertilizer. You know, Nutrien is going to be impacted by the current crisis as the supply of potash from Russia and Belarus is taken out of the system uh, due to sanctions and and you touched on this earlier. So can you take us through the Nutrien investment case?
1: Uh, Sure, Alison. Uh, As you say, I mean, uh, Russia and Belarus are very important uh, parts of the um, uh, fertilizer ecosystem. Uh, About a third of global potash volumes come out of that part of the world. Uh, uh, Sanctions had already been uh, in place against Belarus, which limited their access to global markets. But uh, the full scale, um, you know, situation in Ukraine and the inability for uh, various um, uh, logistics facilities to participate in Russian goods movements means that uh, they are now uh, uh, pretty much officially locked out of the market and that has uh, served to, to dramatically tighten potash markets further. Now, uh, of course, when we invested in Nutrien, we were not aware that this would happen, of course. As you mentioned, Nutrien is um, uh, one of the very important players in the in the global fertiliser industry. They uh, Businesses dominated by the production of, of potash uh, where they own uh, and operate mines in in Canada. Um, they are uh, one of the world's lowest cost producers. Um, the cash costs per tonne run at about $6, uh, which puts them at the very low end of the cost curve. Uh, and they're responsible annually for about uh, 15 to 16 million tonnes of potash production. Um, uh, they also have a... a uh, 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 an interesting retail footprint uh, that came about as a result of a merger some years ago with um, another another Canadian company, uh, and that retail footprint <clears throat> gives them direct access to uh, to the the ultimate buyers of these products. Uh, that is the farming community. Um, so that we think provides some interesting optionality around the core upstream commodity uh, potash business. Um, so. Uh, as you mentioned, um, the um, it's a business that we got involved in last year mainly because we we saw that the the agricultural um, cycle was um, uh, quite well underwritten. Uh, the stock had performed quite well uh, ahead of us purchasing the shares, but when we looked at the uh, the implied fade in earnings um, that was built into the um, uh, forecast out over the next couple of years and we, we modelled that against uh, our own supply-demand uh, estimates for, for, or for, for potash in particular, it was very clear to us that the market was overly concerned uh, with the down cycle um, happening. And, of course, you know, we, we weren't, of course, to be aware of what was to come in Ukraine, but, <clears throat> again, that has highlighted just how fragile some of these commodity markets are um, mm-hmm. with um, uh, Ukraine and, and Russia coming out of the system effectively,
0: and finally, I wanted to end with a quick discussion on gold. You know, costs are rising on so many fronts now, aren't they? And and the situation in the Ukraine has arguably intensified that, that tower risk of stagflation. You know, stagflation is the combination of an economic growth disappointment and an inflation shock. And the longer the conflict continues... You know the greater the impact on economic activity, and high energy and commodity prices are adding to existing above trend growth in wages and rent. And gold really is the ultimate inflation hedge, isn't it, Graham? Uh,
1: that's that's right. Um, we um, we've we've had a position uh, in gold for most of the most of the inception of the fund. In fact, um, we have increased that position uh, in. Uh, the second half of last year. Uh, it's a combination of factors. I think, you know, gold is um, it, unto itself as an asset class, it has its own allure. But, but, it, but ultimately, it has to be matched with bottom-up stories about um, gold production. I mean, gold production is a, it's a tough business to be in, quite frankly, uh, mining um, tons of rock to generate gr- gr- grams of gold. Uh, and doing that at scale and consistently is, uh, it's a tough business and lots of companies don't do it well. Um, uh, So, and we've seen, uh, broadly speaking, we've seen a very significant derating of gold equities over the last decade, I think reflecting the reality of how difficult it it is. Um, So the two names that we have built exposure to, uh, Newcrest uh, here in Australia, uh, which uh, has the attraction of having one of the most attractive reserve profiles of anyone in the industry. Um, uh, Its reserves go out more than 25 years uh, and it has some of the lowest cost mines in the world and more to come on stream um, in the second half of this decade, which will, I think, uh, according to our analysis, will allow them to dramatically reduce their all-in sustaining costs and drive cash margins. Uh, And that's complemented by a position also in Barrick Gold um, which is uh, traded in in Canada and North America. Uh, again, a company that we think has a very uh, high-quality asset base uh, where over the last uh, number of years, the company's, uh, company has taken uh, strong steps to address its cost structure. Uh, and we are now seeing the fruits of that uh, effort coming through in their numbers. And, um, uh, both stocks uh, are cheap what, uh, we think on on current spot prices and there's certainly a case that gold prices can be much higher as we um, uh, come to understand the persistence of uh, inflation <laughs> and where it is today um, uh, but you, you're able to buy these stocks on you know low double-digit multiples of free cash flow so 10 to 12 times current spot rates which we think uh, is is you know in a world of expensive stock markets is, is actually quite attractive.
0: Look, thanks for your time today, Graham. With energy and commodities in the spotlight, it's, it's really been great to have you unpack both the shorter term and the longer term issues. For more information on Antipodes or our views, please head to our website antipodes.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you get an alert as soon as our next episode goes live in a few weeks. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions.